Ephesians 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, if you were, if you were here last time, you'll recall that last week we began to open up this passage and to be, begin to think about the theme of the restoration and even the reviving of the family. And I tried to make an argument for you last week that, well, first of all, that the family, the biological family is still very much at the heart of God's plan. That even though there is a shift that takes place in the dawning of, of the, the church and the the, the beginning of the, the transmission of the gospel to the nations, a shift that takes place from ethnic Israel as a, an extended family towards the church as the new family of God. Nevertheless, there is still this constancy that God is interested in families and that that has not changed and has always been part of God's plan for the redemption of humanity. And I also try to establish for you the fact that at the heart of a healthy family is a godly marriage. And this has been Paul's theme um, as we were looking at that wonderful passage in Ephesians 5 uh, before I departed on sabbatical and we, we just dovetailed and picked up a few of the themes there last week, how at the heart of a healthy family is a godly marriage in which husband and wife love and respect one another in a way that mirrors the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. And then we began thinking about the introduction of children into that context the calling to have children, and the responsibility to raise children in the faith as a disciple-making venture. And I'm acutely aware that this is something that is a sensitive issue, either for those who have been infertile and unable to have children, or not married and would love to have children, as well as in a world that wants to um, argue that, that children are not necessary. And uh, perhaps even that there's a moral obligation not to have children. You know, there are some people who say, listen, the world's too full. We shouldn't be having children. And uh, to which I think we could, we could make some interesting rebuttals. I won't do that today. But anyway, um, the, the calling being that we are called as believers to have kids. I don't know what stage all of you are as individuals. I'm sure it's, there's, a, there's, an, there's a full spectrum here in this room. But you must hear this and understand God's vision and picture here for the family. Now, having delved into this theme last week, the final piece that we're going to think about on this theme is the crucial role that fathers play in the context of the family. And this is what Paul is particularly interested in here as he rounds out his comments. He says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, now, I believe that the need to re-envision fathers and fatherhood is an extremely important and urgent task in the day and age in which we live that has incredibly far-reaching consequences for us as individuals and for the church and even for the world. And I think you could make a fairly strong argument that as we'll see later, so many of the, the, the wrongs and the, the breakdown that we're seeing in our world at large 
in the West at least, has to do with the destruction of family and the absence of fathers. But I think also if we look closer to home, we'll consider the failings of churches. The fact that Christianity in the West has been on the retreat and has been diminishing and has largely been, um, has largely collapsed, not in every quarter of course, but in comparison to a century or two ago. That the heart of this has been a failure of fatherhood, I believe. Of fathers to do their, their job rightly in terms of the calling and responsibility that God places upon men within the household to raise children as disciples of Jesus. And so I don't think that there are many things that we could address that are more important in many ways. Now, I know that the second we enter into a conversation around fatherhood, there's a rawness around this. Of course, there, there are always some who have failed already in this respect and who feel deep regrets as men. But I think more generally and more commonly, there is a widespread awareness that many of us have wounds that are to do with the, the, the inadequacies or the absence of fathers. And therefore, in, in entering into this subject, I'm conscious that we are, we're really provoking an open sore for many people. And it's good to be aware of that. I believe that God is the answer to these, these hurts and these longings that we have. God is the Father we all long for. But I also feel a deep sense of hope. And my hope in, in wanting to speak into this theme is, is a hope for families, either present or in the future, that, that these families will be built in such a way that honors God and that has the potent potential to, to uh, change the world. A hope for, for men who have been discouraged and often ridiculed and often uh, spoken negatively about in the world, but also who perhaps have bought into some of the wrong narratives and pursuits that men are interested in these days. And the last thing on your mind, perhaps, is, is fathering. That you'll, you'll, you'll be re-envisioned for this. I also hope that this speaks to women here. All of you relate to men in some way. You have a relationship with your father, even if he was absent. There's still a sense in which you have a relationship to him by his failure. The men that you might consider as potential spouse, as a potential spouse, how you go about thinking about the process of finding someone to, to marry and to commit to. I don't think there's, there's anyone here for whom this is irrelevant as we delve into this subject. I also feel some hesitation, however. I've been a dad now for 10 years. My oldest turned 10 in June. And to be quite frank, you never feel qualified to speak on this subject. My only hope is that we can turn our attention to what this, the scriptures have to say and the provocations of the truth to equip and to transform us all, myself included. And that God, by his spirit, will awaken within us the kinds of change and the equipping to be able to, to fulfill his call in this regard. So let's jump in. I want to speak on three aspects of this verse. We're going to think, first of all, on the focus on fathers and seek to legitimize and, and, and answer the question as to why Paul focuses specifically on fathers. Then we'll think about the failings of fathers before we begin to think about what it means for fathers to father. So let's jump in and think, first of all, about 
this focus that Paul has on fathers. Look, he, he starts in this way. He says, fathers, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. He speaks directly and forcefully and deliberately to the men in the congregation. And it raises a question, and it's not one that's, that's without controversy, as to whether it's correct for us to, to focus in this way on the role, specific role of fathers, given, of course, that within the context of the home, both dads and mums raise children. Are we right to focus on this? Was, Paul, was that Paul's intention? It won't surprise you that there are those who have who said no, that wasn't his intention. And they do so mainly because of the way language worked in the New Testament. You know that very often um, it's not uncommon in, in, in the Bible to, to see terms that are male terms, but to understand them collectively. Earlier, I, when I was praying, I used the language of sonship, that the Bible talks about us as God's sons. But we all know that it includes men and women adopted into the family of God, that it's a technical term for adoption. So the language of sons doesn't mean men only. Whenever the, the, the most common word for a Christian in the New Testament is brother. Of course, we know that this applies to the women as well in the congregation. And that so often when the Bible addresses men, it means men and women. So this is a given. And there are those who would say, listen, that was Paul's intention here. When he turned and specifically said fathers, he didn't mean to only isolate the men there in, in their role of raising their children, but rather he was speaking more generically to parents. And I think that there's, it's worth just reiterating, of course, that the Bible everywhere cherishes and values the role that mothers play in raising their children. I think in the New Testament, for example, of passages like in Paul's letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy verse 14, he says, I, I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And a household manager was, is a position of leadership that involved business and running of employees, as well as raising children and nurturing them. He's dignifying that great calling that the women had within the context of their household. And he understood their absolute essential role within that context. So we turn back to the book of Proverbs. You read the book of Proverbs, the first 10 or so chapters are a kind of letter to sons around the necessity of gaining wisdom. And one of the exhortations that you hear time and again is, listen to your mother. It says it in Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. And that same expression is, is, is echoed in numerous places in the book of Proverbs. You're a fool if you don't listen to your mother, he's saying. So I don't want to in any way downplay the importance of mothers. And there's always occasion to think about and dignify and understand the irreplaceable role that mothers play. However, when Paul spoke in this way, and turned his attention to fathers, I think you can make a very strong argument that he meant the men, that he was addressing them. And I think that's partly because of language and partly because of context. The language is important here. If you remember verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. He used there the neutral term that referred to men and women, obey your parents. But he shifts his focus here in verse 4 when he says fathers. He uses a different word. So just based on the language alone, I think it's pretty clear that Paul intended to change 
who he was speaking to and addressed the men specifically, but also because of the context. You have to understand, of course, that in the ancient world, fathers, the pater familias, the head of the, the household, they had this undisputed place of authority that was almost absolute in the context of the home and frequently abused as well. I'll give you an example, a quote from a, a scholar called William Barclay, who said this about fathers in the ancient household in the Roman context. He said, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. It was not uncommon, if you know anything of the, the history of families in, in the household in the Roman context, it wasn't uncommon if, to, to, to practice infant exposure, which is where a dad which decide I've had enough children and this latest child who's been born, especially if it was a girl, would be left on a hillside to be eaten by wild dogs. This was a common practice, a known custom, and it was the fathers who made these sorts of decisions. So when Paul's addressing fathers, understand, of course, that he's speaking into a context where they had almost unlimited authority within their own households and in which that authority was frequently abused and misused. So of course he was going to speak to these men. But then it raises the question, what about today? If Paul were writing this letter to the Ephesians to us now, would he single out and specifically speak to the men in this way as fathers or potential fathers? And I think the answer again is yes, and maybe now more urgently than ever. And I think you have to begin with a recognition of one of the fundamental distinctions, really, between men and women by nature. In my observation and experience, and I don't think this is really beyond dispute, men think differently about children than, than women do, on, in general. That whereas women have the, that, that ticking, most women, I know not all feel this acutely, but most women feel acutely the longing to, to, to bear children at some point, the biological clock. Men don't possess a biological clock. They may desire children, they may want to become a father at some stage, but it is not compelled in the same way by their very nature, by their biology, in the same way that it is with most women. Men think about entering into fatherhood, therefore, differently. And when they become fathers, most men are less attached to their children than mothers are by nature. A mother who's born the child for nine months in her womb, who feels that bond deeply, generally speaking, and very powerfully, fathers have to build that bond. It's a different experience being a dad. I found it almost amusing at some levels, but, but also very interesting that when COVID hit and the lockdown t happened um, in early 2020, one of the things that people observed was the fact that men and women who both work and perhaps both hold full-time jobs and their kids are cared for in childcare or in school or whatever, when they were both 
forced to work from home, the men, generally speaking, I'm speaking at the level of society, not just in the church, but generally speaking, the men continue to devote most of their time to their jobs. The women were expected to do both their full-time job and look after the children who were now stuck in their own home. And so, it, and, and the very fact that people defaulted to this, this balance just tells you something about the difference in the way that men and women are wired, the way they think. And there are many things that could go to explain that. But I think one of them is just this fundamental difference in the way that we are structured right down at the heart of our very being and our biology. And so it seems to me that this means that men cannot rely on instinct to be good fathers. That in a sense, it's the role of society and more importantly for us as believers, the role of our faith to compel men to enter into this as a calling when they may not feel the urgency of that by nature. In fact, there are many people, and I think there's a lot of credence to this view, that one of the greatest functions of society in general is to control and structure men's impulses, particularly sexual impulses, by by providing the context and then forcing them to channel their energies towards family for the good of everybody, because left to do their own thing, that is not what men choose, typically speaking. And so it seems to me that, especially in the day and age and hours where the family is fragmenting and dissolving and disintegrating, and being redefined and reinterpreted in in numerous ways, perhaps now more than ever, Paul would actually specifically address men. Because in a world in which you can choose any path you want and society will affirm you and pat you on the back and tell you, you do what you want to do, now more than ever, men need to be reminded of their calling and responsibilities. So I don't think, even if the the, the context is different to ancient Ephesus, I don't think that the call is any less urgent. The focus then is on families. And what is it that men need? They need a theological vision for their calling in this regard. Brothers, you need a vision. You may say, yeah, I can't wait to be a dad. Or I love being a dad. It's not enough that you have an interest in children, that you, or perhaps that you love your own children. I would expect that. You need more than that. You need a theological vision for what it is that God has called you to be and to do. I would stress this negatively and positively. The negative angle on this is, is to observe what happens when men abdicate or or conduct themselves in a passive way towards family. And see how, you know, when we observe our world at large and what has happened as a consequence of the disintegration of family, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that almost every social evil that we see around us has its roots in the failings of fathers. We're constantly scrabbling and trying to fix this with new policies and new government departments and more taxes because the family is broken. And that when families function well and are healthy and fathers are present, you pay less tax because it's not needed. Because society's function is they're meant to function. In fact, I would stress it as strongly as this and say that the great unaddressed crisis of the Western world is the disintegration of the family, and in fact that it is the most important social justice issue alongside of abortion. 
that men understand their responsibility and call and step up in this regard. Now, I'm speaking just generally of the society at large, of course, here. I don't expect anyone out there to be listening. Christians are called to be different. There's a book by Warren Farrell about the brokenness of boyhood. He's, he's writing in an American context. But he has a whole section in there about the importance of fathers for the raising of children and of sons especially. And in an appendix at the end of that book, he lists more than 50 ways in which dad deprivation hurts individuals and hurts us societally. He says, for example, that people without fathers, on average, and please don't take this as any way a curse on you if this has been your story, God redeems lives. But he says that people without fathers often will have shortened lives. You can even observe this right at the, the details of your biology and your cells, that the markers for longer or, or shorter age are different in people without dads. He says that they, are, they tend to have lower attainments academically and lower IQ, that they tend also to have more tendency towards drug use and substance abuse, that there are more psychiatric issues and more depression in fatherless homes, that there is more crime. He says this shocking thing. He says prisons are basically centers for dad-deprived young men. Prisons are basically centers for dad-deprived young men. Generally speaking, when a, when, when a young man has a good relationship with his father, he's not going to end up in prison. Why is no one talking about this? You know, it, it honestly baffles me. We claim to be the generation that cares about social justice. No one dare touch this one. Because it's too controversial. Because it diminishes or seems apparently diminishes the role of women. Because it, because it defines what the family ought to look like. Because it cuts against so much of the prog so-called progressive agenda that we've seen pushed in academic departments and then advertising and movies and Disney and all the rest of it for decades now. It makes you angry. The depths of your being. How blind we can be. That of course if we walk away from God's patterns, everything breaks. Everything breaks. We break. Our lives break. Oh God, we need the gospel. So many of you, this has been your story. The brokenness that's come in because of inadequacy of fathers. Fathers perhaps who were present but didn't show the love and affection or the instruction that they were called to. You need the, the love of the father. Friend, God can turn your life around. He wants to. But if that's the negative side, let me state this positively, why men need a theological vision and why it is that Paul says, fathers. I would want to build a theological vision partly on the fact that growing into fatherhood is a way in which a man conforms to the image of God that is built within him. Now let's be clear that when the Bible says that humans were made in the image of God in Genesis 1, it says male and female, he created them. Men and women are made in God's image. However, that is not to say that our distinctions do not matter. And there is a way in which men specifically image God, and that is by being fathers. Now, I say that also just being aware that some of you will never be dads to your own 
biological children. I, I take so much encouragement from the fact that the scriptures speak of fatherhood as a posture, as a heart, as a maturity that can develop within a man even if he doesn't have his own children. So when Paul laments in one of his letters that there are many guides but not many fathers, he doesn't mean not many biological fathers. He means men who've grown up into the stature of fatherhood, tending for and caring for the weak and the needy, attentive to younger people and those who need nurturing in the faith. So please do not discount yourself if you know that you'll never be a dad. But understand this, that a man, as he grows into increasing maturity from boyhood to manhood, that part of the pinnacle of his maturity is fatherhood, becoming a father, being, having the presence of a father. And in that way, he images the God who made him, who reveals himself to us as father. Part of the theological vision as well is, is that, it, as I said to you last week, this is the center of God's mission and strategy to reach the world through the family and the fathers therefore have this critical and crucial role and that when they fail, typically the family fails, but when they understand their calling and their role within the context of the family, we see disciples made and raised and grown up for the extension of God's kingdom in this world. And I want to add to that another thought here. All of you as men long for purpose. You want to live a life that means something. You want to live a life that has a weightiness to it. And the world will tell you to pursue pleasure, to pursue greed, to pursue selfish ambition, to pursue your interests. And I want to say emphatically, friend, that if you want to find the kind of meaning that God built you to experience in life, one of those ways that you will experience purpose that is far more weighty than the alternatives the world will offer you, is in fatherhood. Whether in the literal sense of bearing your own children, but also in rising up to the stature of fatherhood within the context of the family of God, the church. In summary, when Paul focuses here on fathers, the first word, fathers, uh, men need to hear this and understand that they have the capacity in Christ to do and to become something extraordinary that meets the need of the world by the power of the Spirit of God. That's why we focus on fathers. Now, let's think, and I don't want to dwell here for too long, but I want to think about the failings of fathers. You see, this is where Paul goes. He says, fathers, and he begins with the negative, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, why does he immediately call men out in this way? Why does he start here with the acknowledgement, the understanding that if you see negative reactions within children, rebellion, anger, or, or the suppression of those things in other, other unhealthy ways of acting and living, that very often it's to do with this relationship with the father. Why does he make that assumption? And I think, listen, obviously every family is different. You may be your experience that, that your mother was a, the problem, that you had a difficult relationship with her. And I know that that's not an uncommon thing as well. But I think that, uh, that in general, I think it's fair to say that when most people think about the failings of their parents, it is the father that they especially feel pain towards or point to. Or to put it another way, 
that if you were to end up in therapy one day, working out some of your issues of childhood and family, that it's very likely, more likely than not, that the pain that you would be expressing and working out there would be the inadequacy and the failings of your father rather than of your mother. I know that's not true for everyone. I don't want to make a general statement that discounts what you've been through. But it's typically father, fathers who fail. It's typically father hunger that we feel within us because of the inadequacies of, of men. Now, as I mentioned to you earlier, when Paul was thinking about the men in this congregation, the families that he would have observed there, there are, of course, important cultural differences that, that apply to them that don't necessarily apply to us now. So when he said to them, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, without a doubt, he's thinking about the specific ways that men could abuse their position within their role as, as, as heads of homes in ancient Ephesus. The fact that, for one thing, fathers had almost unlimited authority, as I explained to you earlier, not just over their children, but also over the grandchildren if they happened to live long enough to meet them. They had that power, that authority, as the head of the pater familias over everyone within, within their lineage. Another thing here to note is that fathers were actually responsible for the raising, particularly of sons, from the age of seven. That mothers were responsible for them until seven, then fathers from seven onwards, which meant that you know, of course, we want fathers to be involved, but when fathers are doing their job badly, there's just a lot more opportunity and exposure between the, the children and the father, and particularly the sons and the fathers, for the, for the fathers to mess their kids up in the ancient world. These days, we just abdicate, send them out to school, let other people do a lot of the work. Another element here was that the culture was one of extreme harshness, and discipline. I mean, some, some thinkers and voices on parenting in the ancient world, the Greek and then the Roman world, actually frowned upon parents and especially fathers having any fun with their children or enjoying them in that way. Regarded as kind of stepping down and aborting your, your position of authority within the home. No, no, the expectation was a strong, disciplinarian, harsh approach to parenting. So even a few hundred years after this, when... John Chrysostom, who was a bishop within the church, is preaching about this, 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 uh, th this passage. He said that parents embittered their children by oppressing them with burdens, by treating them not as though they were free, but as slaves. So his observation of the way parents handled their children because of the culture and the norms that, the, that were present then was that they, 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 were, they treated the children as though they were slaves within the home. I understand the temptation, you know, as a dad, it's like, Go and get that for me, please. Go and, go and fetch that for me. You feel that. But imagine, imagine if that's the cultural expectation, to turn your kids into workers. What about today, though? Of course the culture has changed. I think we're much more aware. I'm not sure if it's helping, but I think we're much more aware of the need for fathers to be emotionally present, for them to be healthy influence in the lives of their children, to not be too harsh, too disciplinarian. But even so, it seems to me that men have universal tendencies that provoke within children this reaction of anger and rebellion. Think how men are typically more given to harshness. 
typically more given to controlling behavior or angry behavior. How they are often impossible to please. Or if, if, even if you know, that's how a father may look when he's present, it's also the case that men, more often than not, will be, will be disinterested, will be uninvolved, will be distant, even if they're present within the context of the home. And so it, it seems to me that even fatherly absence can create anger in children, as well as an overly stern presence. In fact, even a father who doesn't look like this, who's, who's weak and insipid, will eventually make his children feel angry. It, it doesn't matter where you go wrong as a dad, your kids are going to react against it at some point, in other words. And the fact that men will fail as fathers is, is a given. We're not perfect. That's why the fathers need the gospel themselves, first of all. The grace of God to come and re- constantly renew them in repentance to be able to be better as men and better as fathers. And also your children need the gospel because you cannot be a substitute for the fatherhood of God. And when your failings bite and when you see reactions and when you see anger within your children because of the things that you do wrong and the things you fail to do, your children need to have been introduced to the fatherhood of God, the father who will always love them and tend to them and nurture them even when you cannot. Fathers will fail, friends. And when they fail, the reaction very often in children is this anger, this rebellion, this reaction that Paul identifies here. He'd seen it. We all have seen it. Many of us have expressed it. What a weighty responsibility it is to be a dad. This brings me to the last focus here. Fathers who father. This is what Paul says positively to them. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is he calling for here? If I could summarize this as succinctly as I can, in a nutshell, as it were, it's that a father is called to raise up little men and little women of God, disciples of Jesus. That's his job. That's what Paul is expecting of these men. I think we all want it. I think in our heart of hearts, we all resonate with the yearning, the notion of fathers doing fathering well in this regard. It's not even just Christians who think like this. You know, I think back to my childhood. I grew up as a kid in the 80s. Some of the movies that made the biggest impression on me, sorry if you've not seen any of these, but the movies that made the biggest impression on me were so often at the heart of them about a kind of fatherly relationship with a disciple. Think of Karate Kid. You know, Daniel-san relates to Mr. Miyagi as a father figure, doesn't he? Wax on, wax off. And the, the patient way in which he raises him in, and nurtures him and helps him is really about a father-son dynamic, even if they're not biologically father-son. Think about Star Wars. You know, it's all about fathers and sons. Qui-Gon Jinn and Anakin, nurturing him, discipling him. Luke turning to Obi-Wan and then also to Yoda, his father figures. And then the immortal line, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> it's all about fatherhood, isn't it? And they, it, this, this is why I think 
as a kid, me, like countless others, resonated with these, these themes, these storylines. Because fatherhood is so woven into our very nature, the longing for it, the need for it. I think about Rocky, Rocky Balboa, his relationship with Mickey, his trainer. So much of that film is not really about the fighting, but about the nurturing and the, the, what it means to become a courageous warrior and how others, an older figure, can raise that up within you. Now, we could go on all day talking about 80s films that are about fathering, but I just want you to understand the point, friends. This is deeply, this is, this is in our nature. And so, when Paul says this, everything in you should resonate with a massive yes. He uses three expressions. Let me quickly explain to you what they are. He says, fathers, raise them up. Bring them up is the first expression. The word he uses there can be translated nourish. It's the same word he used in chapter 5 when you cast your eyes back to verse 29 where it says that no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. That word nourishes is the same word he uses here of fathers nourishing their, their children, raising them up, helping them to grow, giving them everything they need that they can grow up strong physically, emotionally, in character, mentally, in every regard. Raise them up. The second expression he uses here is in the discipline of the Lord. This word discipline is sometimes meant, as we understand it now, the discipline of, of, of chastisement. It's used that way in Hebrews 12. But the, the Greek word has a much broader meaning than that. One of the dictionaries translates it, interprets it as, the, as a vision for the, the, the whole training and education of children. Everything. Their, their mental growth and development. Their physical growth and development. Disciplining them, raising them up, instructing them, and helping their character to grow and to form and to develop in order that they become, they become upright citizens. And the, the third expression he uses here is the instruction of the Lord, which is a word that actually is often in the New Testament translated warning or admonition. So if you as a preacher come and, 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 and warn the congregation, that's the kind of context in which the word is often used. So you have this picture of a father who's nurturing and nourishing, who's dis dis disciplining and, and training and educating, but also instructing and warning and exhorting his children. It's, it's a complete image, isn't it, of what a father is meant to be and to do within the context of his home. And of course, I don't think that what it means is that he has to do everything and be everything for his children all of the time. It meant that he, as his position as head of the household, had to ensure that all these things are accomplished for his children by the right people. So with the teamwork between father and mother, the mother would be as involved as he was, of course, but the father's just ensuring and, 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 and making sure that this takes place. Or if he sends his child out for education in some other context, he's ensuring that this happens for his child under the right tutelage. But I want you to see that, he, that Paul puts this pressure, this stress, this responsibility upon the father, under God, to be the one who takes responsibility for this. So I want to round off what I have to say here today by asking the question, how? How are, how are men called to accomplish this, to be this for their children? And I want to give you five provocations. They'll be fairly brief, but just to, to stir you up. The first is presence. Not gifts, <laughs> but your presence. You cannot father if you are not there. It's 
It is perhaps you know, one of the reasons why we've seen such a the dissolution and dissolving of the family over the last century or more has been the fact that fathers have gone out to work, which was a relatively new phenomenon in history. Traditionally, men worked from the home. They were a presence in the home. I don't think that automatically made them good dads, but you understand that taking a father outside of the home and putting him in a place of work, especially when those hours get longer and longer, and then diverting him because of all the stress, diverting him with entertainments and hobbies that suck up so much of his time, means that children have suffered because they've seen less and less of their dads. And as men, where you may have little choice about how much time you spend out of the home, or you may feel that there are, there are, some things are taken out of your hands here, you have to constantly ask the question, are you present there for your children? Are you present? And it's not just about being physically present either, is it? Because even if you're physically present, you may not be attentive. I know this temptation as a dad. That there are obviously things that at times are more intellectually stimulating than my children. And I want to turn my attention to other things. You have to be so self-aware, don't you? You know, over the years, I, I, I began to observe in myself as, you know, we were all taken somewhat by surprise, weren't we, when we had smartphones and how much they began to take a hold in our lives. And I began to observe myself from the outside in, realizing how much of my time was, was, was gazing at a screen. And I have made strong and deliberate efforts over the years to cut back, 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 and even just making my phone as dumb as possible because I don't want my phone to be calling for my attention when my children are around me. It's evil. It's not that there's evil intent necessarily, but that it's evil that I would allow myself to be unattentive to my children because I'm at the, the whims of other people's demands or because I'm sucked into some other diversion. I want to read a verse or a couple of verses here that just underlines this because this is how the Bible speaks about our Heavenly Father. When Jesus is teaching on prayer, he says, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he says, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles because he says, your Father who knows what you need before you ask him. You have to see there that at the very heart of what it means to experience God as Father is his attentiveness to you. That he sees you, that he knows your heart better than you know it yourself. That as you struggle to express what you long for in prayer, the Father already knows. And I think that's what men should aspire to when they become dads. To know the hearts of their children better than those kids even know themselves. And that has to do with presence. Another word here, a provocation is example. It is terrifying to see how much children learn by imitation because they become mirrors of you. This is especially true when they're young, but I think that you form them far more than you realize just by 
who you are and what you do and what you care about, what excites you, what interests you. And they begin to echo who you are, your strengths and your failings. And it happens before you know it. Of course, there are other ways we train and teach children, but your example, I think, is perhaps the most potent. And so as men, you have to ask yourself this question. Will my children become more like Jesus by watching me? Will they be more excited about Christ because they see that excitement in me? Will they worship more vigorously and passionately on church on Sundays because of how I worship and how they see me worshiping? Will they be interested in the Word of God because they see my hunger and appetite for God's Word? Will they be compassionate towards people who are broken and who, are, who need the love of God because they see my heart broken towards the needy? Will they be careful in the handling of money, wise in stewardship because they see that that's how I care for money? Will they cherish mom because they see how I love my wife? Imitation is perhaps the majority of parent, parenting. The, the way your children imitate you makes me bring to mind what Paul has to say to the Corinthian church when he says to them that they should imitate him as he imitates Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He confidently said to them, if you follow me, then you have a, a reliable guide because I'm seeking to live like Jesus. That should be the mentality of fathers, your example to your children. The third provocation is correction. Now, we live in a world, as I was saying last week, that is, I think, very confused on the issue of disciplining and correcting children, even to the extent that some people believe it's wrong to oppose your child's wishes and, and their will, that you're somehow crushing or oppressing them or distorting who they are as a person to impose yourself on them. How dare you, is the question. And that certainly is true when people equate the inflicting of pain through discipline whether that's physical or emotional or any other way, to abuse. They say it's abusive to inflict pain upon a child. Now, I think this theologically is, is completely wrong. Of course you can abuse children, and we abhor it. Children are to be loved and cherished. We have to watch our hearts and our conduct. But the Bible is very clear that fathers who do not discipline their children do not love their children. Not rightly, at least. Think about how this is said in Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In other words, part of the authentication of your faith and of your relationship with God is the fact that from time to time, he gives you a beating. That he puts you through experiences that are designed to chastise and correct and form your character because he tenderly loves you. And it seems to me that part of the calling of fatherhood and to walk, what it means to walk in that calling of disciplining your children is being, being actively involved in the discipline of kids. Not allowing it all to fall on the on mother. Now I will add there, when if you ask the question around physical discipline specifically, 
I know that there is nothing more controversial than this in terms of raising children today. And that it's even been outlawed in certain sections of the United Kingdom. Nevertheless, I think it's worth just stating why I think it's, it's helpful. Especially when they're young. And I, I, would, I could make a long argument for this, but one of them is that it is fast. That's a good thing. Long, drawn-out discipline processes only, only makes everyone more miserable. Quick discipline means that you can deal with it quickly, you can forgive quickly, you can, ch- you can move back to that position of forgiveness and peace in the household quickly. And that is very good and healthy for a child and for you. It's also a universal language. I could smack my children before they understood my words. And that is helpful, especially when they're endangering themselves by their actions. And you have to imprint upon them what it means to be obedient by your tone of voice and by, by physical discipline. This also seems to me to be less emotionally manipulative than some of the alternatives. You know, when you, I think there are all kinds of suggestions, aren't there, how you can discipline a child without using physical discipline. We take, for example, like putting them on the naughty step. That child sits in a heap of condemnation for an extended period of time, which is the opposite of the way God treats us. Now, I'm not saying it can't be effective, but what I am saying is that somehow, you know, somehow we've got this double thing going on in which we think that physical pain is abusive, but emotional pain isn't. It's complete nonsense. One of the beauties of of inflicting physical pain on your child is that you can tell them you love them even as you do it, especially if you do not and you must never do it in anger. They know you love them. They even feel it in the inflicting of pain. It must never be excessive. But of course, it gets the message across and they learn to obey. And the beautiful thing that any parent who, who does this well will tell you is that by the time they're three, you never have to do it again. It's done. I'm not saying that your child's going to be perfect from that day onwards. I, I wish. But, but what I'm saying is that the fundamental structures of authority in the home have been established, and they know it deep in their being. Presence, example, correction. Let me add a fourth thing here. Teaching. I want you to remember that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Where, Paul, where, where, the, where Moses describes the, the household that is captivated by the word of God and issues this call. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall, walk, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. I love that passage because it's the image of a a theologian father. In fact, both parents involved here, without a doubt. But of the fact that the word of God shapes you so that you can shape others, that's true of discipleship, isn't it, in the context of the church? You can only teach others when you've learned. And it's especially important when you have something as malleable and for, in, in formation as a young child. We need to lay down the principles of the word of God as early and as quickly as we can that they might think rightly according to God's truth. We teach. And finally, encouragement. I love that word encouragement because if you break it down, it literally means putting courage into somebody. And it seems to me that part of 
the desperate need of the day and of the hour is that our children feel courageous levels of conviction about who they are and what they're called to be under God and the things that they believe. That without that courageous posture and stance, they will be battered by the opposing forces and winds of the culture in which we live. And therefore, putting courage into children is, I think, one of the greatest callings of parents and of fathers specifically. There are so many ways you can do this, but just think about the ways that you, you operate towards daughters and towards sons. How your daughters need to know how cherished they are, that they are royalty in the family of God. That they are beautiful, that you adore them, and that the more their soul is fed and encouraged by a father's love, the less likely they will go looking for that love from abusive and users, using men. They won't need it. And how your sons need to hear the call to stand upright. That there's a kind of warrior spirit that needs to be evoked within children, especially in boys. So they understand that the war against Satan and against temptation and against all the, the pressures of their peers is a war that they must engage in with courage and must fight against. So that as they grow up into manhood, they will not be the kind of selfish jerks that often culture can form by its, by its encouragement to indulge your every impulse and desire, but will have discipline and mastery of themselves because from the youngest age, you've taught them who they are in Christ, given them strength, fortitude, structure and skeleton and backbone in the truth. Encouragement. Friends, in summary, fathers are essential. And the persistent, I think the persistent failure of fatherhood, not just now, but all through history, is one of the greatest human indicators within our own souls that we need the love of God. That we all have father hunger even when our own dads were amazing. It tells you that you were made for the love of a greater father. And so friends, I want to just close by reminding you of these precious words at the beginning of Ephesians 1. Where we began many months ago. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Men, you can only be healed and become the fathers that you are called to be to your own children or to others in the context of the family of God when you have experienced the fatherly love of God yourself to heal you and make you whole. And women, it goes without saying that the men around you will disappoint you. There will be better and worse examples, I've no doubt. But they will disappoint you. They will fall short. And your deepest need is always to come back to the love of the Father. And to have your soul nurtured and nourished and your hope restored in Him. And it's in that vein that we're going to take a few moments in worship now. Let's bow our heads so we can pray.